folks. Now, on this week, we're going to be talking to Clint Coons from Anderson Inviters about legal and tax questions that a lot of you guys had submitted to me in the past. I know this stuff, but I'm always catching myself knowing that I'm not a CPA tax attorney. So we're going to hear it right from Clint. A lot of your guys' questions that you guys have given me in the past. I'm really excited. I'm going to be seeing a lot of you guys this next week in Napa Valley as we do a little bit of a Hui Mixer. And then we're off to Huntsville, Alabama to check out all our apartments out there. We try and do an apartment tour for you guys to come and check out the apartments that you guys own with us at least once a year. This is... uh, about the time before Halloween and holiday season, this is probably the last opportunity for the year. But if you guys want to interact with us, meet other investors, again, that was a big turning point in my investment career was really meeting other really passive investors and really understanding why I need to get out of rental properties because it's a headache, too much liability, as we're going to be talking to Clint about that today. And it's just too much headache. And really this whole bursar strategy buy, rent, rehab, repair, refinance. That's great strategy, but it's just too much effort. And for a lot of accredited investors, which most of the people that who listen to the show and especially invest with us these days are accredited investors and their time is more value than their money. And they certainly don't want to go to the risk of doing a remote burr or a burr even in their backyard. So again, hopefully you guys can join us January 13th to the 16th in Honolulu, Hawaii for our annual retreat. For more information about that, please join our club at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. If you want to be considered to come to that, you guys need to book those mandatory onboarding calls with me. There, you're going to get a bunch of other content such as our free infinite banking e-course and a whole slew of other free resources. So again, join at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club and enjoy the show. This is a story about a dude named Lane He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay And then one day he went and tried to rent them out And then he became one real investor man What's up folks? We have Clint Coons from Anderson Advisors on the show We're going to be talking about tax and legal A lot of the questions I've been hearing from a lot of you folks what do you do for asset protection? And I wanted Clint to answer some of the tax questions that I keep hearing from you guys. We will put this video up at simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. And from there, you guys can also sign up to have a pre-consult with Clint's folks and all these other tax information we have on that page. Again, simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. Clint, joining us again, it's been like two or three years, I think. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I last saw you in person, I think in 2019. Looking the same, man. Looking good out there. Thank you. Likewise. So the first thing, ask protection. Why is it important? And maybe we start with some of the basics. It really comes down to ensuring that if anything were to go wrong with your investments or on your personal side, that the assets that you're investing into are not going to be put at risk. Look, I've been investing now like you have for 15 years. I'm older, so I've been going at it longer. And I've I've built up a sizable portfolio, over 300 properties and multiple different strategies, buy and hold, fix and flip, self-storage, apartment buildings. And so through my investing, I've come across some issues before. I've had two houses burn down in the last year. Luckily, nobody was hurt. I've had a tree fall through a house and strike the master bedroom. Again, narrowly avoided disaster. And through it all, 
if anything had gone wrong and somebody had actually died or been severely injured, that would have resulted in a lawsuit. And I see people day after day, not quite on that frequency, but I do see people every year that will send me a, a lawsuit, a letter from an attorney, explaining to them how they're being sued because of something happened on their property. And they live in Hawaii and the investment's over in Florida. And they have never even seen the investment, never physically been to the property. And now they're involved in a lawsuit. And so with asset protection, I tell individuals time and time again, hey, listen, the likelihood of being sued, it's not huge, right? You're probably pretty safe. But the thing is that if you do get sued, the first person you're going to call is Anderson or another attorney. And you're going to say, what can you do to protect me? And unfortunately, there's nothing I can do. I was just responding to an email before you and I got on here. And this family is going through a situation where the grandfather owned the property. He contaminated the property. And now we're four generations or four buyers down the line. And they're asking me what they can do to protect themselves now because of that environmental contamination, because they know they're, they've already been threatened that they're going to be sued and they want to start protecting their assets. And the answer to that is nothing. I can't help you now. You shouldn't have told me that you were going to be sued and all the backstory because it really ties my hand. So asset protection, you need to be proactive. You set it up just in case the worst harm occurs so that you've minimized your overall risk exposure. If you've been listening to the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast since 2016, you have seen me well change my mind a few times. At one time, I thought buying a bunch of rentals was the way to financial freedom, so you could be that cool guy at the local real estate club with all the other misguided landlords. As I became an accredited investor, I discovered the three-step system that we use today. First, syndication deals where you don't invest with dishonest operators to get better returns than the 401k financial planner garbage. Second step, get passive losses to unlock the tax best practices that the wealthy employ. And last and least impactful, number three, infinite banking. If your net worth is not yet $1 million, check out my free turnkey rental remote e-course at simplepassacashflow.com slash turnkey. All right, speaking to a credit investor to a credit investor, my 123 system is very simple to implement, but it requires plugging into a community of purely passive accredited investors like ours. Join our investor club for more insider access. Go to simplepassacashflow.com slash club. Those who are looking to deploy more than $250,000 their first year or make over $300,000 in annual income or net worth over a couple million dollars should really look into our exclusive inner circle called the Family Office HANA Mastermind, FOOM for short. Learn more at simplepassacashflow.com slash journey. Very similarly, I just, just heard this story from one of my investors and they it was a story of they got inherited a property from their dad and their dad just does everything old school, just doesn't do anything with lawyers. And I guess somebody, there was an elevator that broke and then now they're suing all the three siblings equally. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of expanded the scope of the lawsuit. So a windfall for the person suing to go after everybody. A lot of that stuff, like to your point, you can't do it after the fact. So maybe talk again where I'm always like, why the heck would you want to own any rental properties in the first place? Our group, I know you work with a wide spectrum of investors, but to me, once you go over million or $2 million net worth, that's where the syndications as the LP position comes into play. But I guess maybe from when you're in an infancy under half a million dollars net worth, what do you think is more appropriate? And maybe walk us through as people grow their net worth, what is more appropriate from an asset protection standpoint? I get that question a lot. And what I tell people, just think about it. 
properties. How many people say, how many properties should I put in one limited liability company? And they'll be shocked. I'll tell them one property per LLC. I'm like, come on, my property is only worth $60,000 or $100,000 each in equity. And say, yeah, that's fine. But how much income do those properties generate for you? Because really, for most of us, we want to protect the income stream. And if something goes wrong with one property, you have five properties in one LLC, and they make $5,000 each on an annual basis, you just lost $25,000 a year in income. Wouldn't you rather be in a situation where you lose $5,000 and you save $20,000? And so this notion that your net worth determines the type of planning that you should use for your structuring, I think is misplaced because the person that has $500,000, if they were to lose $100,000, that's 20% of their net worth. Whereas somebody like yourself or myself, I could lose a hundred grand and it's not going to impact what I'm drinking. As you can see on my back shelf, they're all empty, by the way. It doesn't impact me to the same degree because I have so many more properties and I make so much more income. And so I think when you're first starting out, you're at more risk because you don't know what you don't know. And many times when, until you start having, you don't even know what you, you need to know. And you get this backwards in your structures that you need more protection at the outset. And then as you start to grow and you get to somewhere where I'm at, I don't have 300 LLCs. There's no way I would create that for myself. So what I'll do is I'll start grouping properties. I'll put 10 properties in an LLC. And yeah, I could potentially lose an LLC if one of those houses that burned down, that was in an LLC. If somebody was killed, I would have lost 10 properties. But the point is that I have 29 other LLCs or 290 other properties, and that loss is not going to change my lifestyle. Whereas the person that has $500,000 has one house, you get involved in a lawsuit because of that one property, or maybe you have two properties and you get involved in a lawsuit because of that. Not only could you lose those two properties, but one impact is that going to have on your personal life as well if a judgment's entered against you. And so I encourage people to always put plans together that is commensurate with the risk, but also ensures that if anything happens with the asset, they're protected, or if they're involved in a lawsuit because they've entered into a bad lease or involved in a car accident, or a bank comes after them for a deficiency judgment, that people can't get after their assets, number one, their savings, their real estate, or what a lot of times people don't think about what you brought up, syndications. If you're investing in syndications, I think the biggest mistake people make time and time again is put their own name down on the syndication. They should invest through an LLC so they can preserve that cash flow as it comes out. It wouldn't be paid out to a creditor. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. There's two types of liability. There's the ones coming from so many chips and falls or the elevator breaks in your rental property. Or I think what you're referring to in that case is if the outside in liability is what right. your kind of primary concern is. Maybe expand on that and on like people to differentiate between the two, because I think that gets lost in the shuffle a lot of times. Yeah. So you, we have what are called dangerous assets that create liability for us. Real estate creates liability for you. Just like if you live in Hawaii and you have an investment property in Florida, if somebody injures themselves on that investment property, they're going to sue the owner and you didn't have to do anything wrong. You had a property manager that was managing it, but it doesn't matter. You're still responsible because you own the property. And if you own it in your own name, they're coming after you. But if you have it in a LLC, they're going after the LLC. And hopefully that's the only asset that's available to them in that LLC. So worst case scenario, what do you lose? You lose the equity in that property. 
plus what I say is more important, the income, but you're preserved. I'd, I had a client that are client and I met them a long time ago and they had the, this issue where they owned everything on your own name. And so now we're going to switch and talk about what happens with assets on our liability on the outside. So they had multiple properties, 14 homes, and they sent their son off to college and he's there less than a week and he hits someone with a car and he makes his person a paraplegic. So the attorneys, of course, sue the parents because they were paying for the kid's education. They were still responsible for him. And they find them liable for this person's injuries and they bankrupt them. And so here's a couple. They had actually retired. were living off the income from their assets. They're in their early 60s. They BK themselves because of this lawsuit. And now they're back at different jobs trying to rebuild. And the thing they said to me is they said, you know what? I wish we had this knowledge when we had the assets. We just didn't appreciate the risk at that point in time. And so this is what we refer to as outside liability. You're going to be sued personally. And then the question is, what can that creditor attach? What can they get from you? By using limited liability companies, certain types of trusts, limited partnerships, what you're able to do is limit a creditor's recovery to what we call a charging order, which means that if it's in an LLC, if you set it up the right way, we can't take your LLC from you. We can't take the properties that are held inside of it. We can't take your cash flow that is being generated from the properties or from a syndication. That all stays protected inside of that box. You control it. I have a client, longtime client, lives in Oahu, and she was involved in a situation where she, she got into a deal with two Hawaiian real estate developers, and she got the short end of that deal. And now she was going after him for $2 million and she gets a judgment against them, a personal judgment against each of them for 2 million bucks. And she wrote me an email a couple of years back, really frustrated. She said, Clint, I've got this judgment and I'm not getting paid. They're living in my own neighborhood in luxury condominiums, driving Teslas and Mercedes. And I know what they have. They have all these LLCs and there isn't a single attorney that can get me paid. And she wanted me to look at it and see if I could offer any advice. And Unfortunately, my response was, there's nothing we can do. She set them up. The developers set it up this way so they're protecting their income stream and their assets. And I, I knew every LLC that they had, and I knew how the money flowed through all the LLCs. And I explained to her, I said, I did the same thing for you. And if the shoe was on the other foot, you wouldn't have to pay out. And so I understand it's frustrating, but that's why people use entities. And that's why I think people who have assets, people who are investing, they're putting themselves out there, need to take adequate steps to protect themselves. So hypothetical question here, because it's always hard for us to determine like which one is the biggest liability, outside in, inside out. If I had 10 rental properties, which I think are dirty assets because things happen in them, and would you be more concerned for me personally, driving down to the grocery store, hitting grandma, like that kind of outside in attack versus something happening with the 10 properties, I guess. Just because you see these cases, you see the actual lawsuits and from the outside and inside all the time. Which one, like, which one would people do people need to worry about more? It's equal. People get sued for the most random things because you can never predict. When a lawsuit's going to happen, you're right. Driving down to the store, two years ago, I was driving to a restaurant in around near Christmas time for dinner, 
and it was raining, it was dark, and some guy's walking across the street in all black in an unlit street. I'm like, you idiot. I almost clipped him. My wife freaked out because I couldn't see very well because it was pouring down rain. And had I hit him, that would have been a lawsuit. And so things like that can occur. But at the same time, I've got a whole bunch of emails and letters from clients that I use in my presentations even where I show people, hey, this person bought a piece of property and they're being sued because this is what happened. And so it's equal. And that's why you need to balance that out. And by putting together the structures, you're protecting yourself from the assets. So if anything goes wrong there, you're protected. And you're also protecting the asset from anything that you do. So you get two forms of protection by putting it into effect. Yeah. I would also mention if you're a doctor or a high liability profession, even like a real estate broker, they're going to get sued all the time. That potential for that outside in attack is probably much larger than the average W-2 employee out there. That's what Clint's saying. So if an investor is dumping all the rental properties, going into syndications deals as a passive investor, then they don't have to worry too much about the liability from the investment, but they still have to worry about the outside. They themselves are the worst enemy or the liability at that yeah. point. So actually, a physician client one time called me up, and this was classic. He's a physician client. He wasn't at the time. He wasn't. And he said, hey, there's a judgment against me that's coming down, and I'm about to have a liquidation event with a syndication that I'm invested into. How can I word it to this deal sponsor that's running the syndication that I don't want to receive that money right now, and I want him to hold it until after this thing all plays out? And I said, really, you think they're just going to make an exception for you and say, we're going to liquidate out our, our every other investor in this deal. But for you, we're going to hold on to your funds because you're afraid that they're going to go to a creditor. I said, that's not reality. And in fact, if you made that call, what is it going to show? That you're trying to influence or hide assets and you're going to put that person at risk. So they have no incentive to help you. If, they, if I was their attorney, I'd tell them not to. So how do you protect against that? What you do is you take your syndication interest and you put them into a limited liability company. Typically, we're going to set it up in Wyoming or Delaware, and you have it held by that LLC. So when the syndicators do pay out, it doesn't go to you directly. It goes to your LLC that you control, you're the member of. And if you were staring down a lawsuit or a judgment, the creditors can't step in front of you and swipe that distribution from you. Because the only time they're going to get paid, get this, is if you decide to take money out of your limited liability company and pay it to them. And I haven't met a person yet that's been in that situation where they say, yeah, I've got 500000 sitting in this limited liability company. I'm just going to start taking distributions to make sure my creditor gets paid. More likely, they're going to say, I'm just going to reinvest it, sit on this until that judgment expires, and then I'll start taking my money out. That's how it works. But most of the time, you're never going to get there. And the reason why is because attorneys understand how all this works, and they're going to settle. One of my clients in Los Angeles, $1.7 million judgment entered against him earlier this year. And of course, he's tripping all over himself, freaking out. He's going into a debtor's exam. He's saying, what do I tell him? I said, you have to be completely honest. You disclose everything that they ask. And so he started going through and telling them how he set up LLCs. He was using myself as his attorney through Anderson. And they pulled up our information on Anderson. 
And there were three attorneys that were grilling them. And they started conversing amongst themselves. And then they turned the mic off, turned off the camera. They did a re- they took a recess for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. They came back and they said, listen, I understand you're using this firm. You've set up the structures you've already disclosed. We don't need to continue on if you're willing to accept $400,000. We'll settle today for 400 grand. 1.7 million to $400,000 once they knew what they were up against. Calls me up, he goes, what do I do? I said, what do you want to do? He goes, I want to take it. And I said, no, you don't want to take that. That's just their opening offer. <laughs> They're going to go lower. They just showed their hand because they knew they wouldn't get paid otherwise. And so sure enough, we went lower or he did. And that's the point why you have this stuff, because it puts you in a stronger position. Yeah. And again, I think that's where not a lot of people realize like this stuff, it's not black or white binary. It's going to protect you, not protect you. In a way, it's like a magic card that, yes, it shields you from the vast majority of the settlement. Everything's pretty much settled. I don't know what the stats are, but like 90, 99% of things are settled. Just goes through a math formula. If you have your LLC or some other legal entity set up that basically like a shield. Correct. So what's like the standard, like on the podcast form here, we can't really go into too many details, mm-hmm. but what's some like a typical f- like entity structure or maybe multiple structures for the average multimillionaire? They're just a passive investor. What kind of does that kind of look like for folks? Well, typically I tell people anonymity is king. Make sure they don't know what you have because... If they can't find it, they're not going to know they can go after it. It's not something they can recover against. Make yourself appear as if you don't own much of anything, because that increases the likelihood that a personal creditor will settle for policy limits and go away. And that's really what we're driving towards. It's those aggressive creditors where the attorney is trying to make a buck more than the policy limits. That's going to push past that where you want to make sure you have a firewall set up. And the best way to create a firewall is to use limited liability companies, an LLC that has what we refer to as charging order protections. So I like to always set someone up with a Wyoming limited liability company because it's some of the best protection you can use to ensure that if you get sued personally, a creditor cannot break that LLC and get into whatever it holds. So we start with that as the base foundation. And then from there, that LLC will own other limited liability companies because that's the outside-in shield. So if somebody sues you, that stops them from getting into your assets, your investments. You hit grandma going down the road, the outside-in. That's right. Perfect example of that. So now your investments, your syndications, your real estate that you own, your brokerage account, equities, things like that, you're going to set up separate not the syndications or the savings account. You drop that right in your Wyoming LLC. But if you own residential real estate, single families, maybe you have a duplex here or there, you put those in separate LLCs and they all point to the Wyoming LLC. So they're all owned by that one Wyoming LLC. So if you were involved in a lawsuit and somebody said to you, hey, how many LLCs do you own? I only own one. They need to ask the question, how many LLCs does the one LLC that you own? Well, maybe it owns eight but it's your shield. So by setting this up in the manner which I described, if something were to happen with one of those other upper tier LLCs that happens to hold a duplex, then it's going to stay contained in that LLC and that's going to absorb any losses associated with that. But your 
syndications protected, your brokerage account, your savings is going to be exempt. You're going to be exempt from that lawsuit. Your personal residence is not going to be attached. It's just going to lock it down. And so for most people, that's the type of structure we would recommend you set up. Now, where you're investing is really important. Where you live is important as well, because there are nuances to the types of entities and strategies we use. It's not a one size fits all. People think I talk about LLC. So if they're investing in Florida, we're just going to use a limited liability company. Or if you're in California, it's going to be an LLC. It's really not. And so in different jurisdictions, we use different types of entities because you have to look at not just the asset protection, you need to look at what are the tax implications? Do you want to put together a structure that's going to create a taxable event when you put the property into it? Yeah, you get asset protection, but at what cost? It costs you $7,000 in transfer taxes or reassessment of the property. So you need to understand that other side of it as well and look to different types of tools that will ultimately achieve the same desired result, but it's not going to be with any type of negative consequences that can come from reassessments or transfer taxes. And I think what Clint's trying to say too there is don't go to legal Zoom because I think that's where this stuff gets personal. And I think that's why, let me tell you guys, uh, if you guys are new to our group, book a quick call with myself. We can dig into your guys' other non-legal side. That's my area of expertise, but it's all personal finance and it's, it's all legal structuring. It's all personal to your situation, where you live, how much money you make, what's your values and what's your legal liability as your profession, et cetera. But I guess, Clint, what's, what are some of these legal structures that you're not a big fan of, or maybe don't really apply to all um, situations? And I guess before you get, you answer that, I'm just going to take a time to also say, Tell everybody here, make sure you guys get your umbrella insurance. That's essentially mm-hmm. what is the giveaway for the lawyers when it comes settlement time. So get a umbrella insurance, at least like a million bucks. Most people in our family office group are getting that for three, four hundred bucks oh, a year. That's nothing. Absolutely. Uh, what are the, some of the mistakes that people end up making? People I see the like these series LLCs, these land trusts. There's a bunch of like, plethora of different options out there. Maybe you can talk to why sometimes that doesn't, those things don't make sense. Because where you're using it, it has to be recognized or it has to provide some benefit. If you set up a series LLC, for instance, and you create a bunch of cells associated with the series LLC, and then you want to own real estate in Hawaii through these independent cells of a Delaware series, that ain't happening. You could do it. But at the end of the day, if you got sued, you're not going to have the protection that structure would provide you if you're making that same investment in Texas that actually recognizes the series LLC. So you see people try to use structures that aren't appropriate for the state where the asset's located. They think, oh, I'm going to save a couple bucks by going with the series LLC. I hate to tell you that it's not going to work there. Land trusts. I use land trust for my investing, but I'm not one of those that I'm going to tell you, you need to use a land trust in every situation because the problem you run into, it complicates your life. So I like to keep things simple. I've seen multi-tiered structures before that the benefit doesn't outweigh the cost. And when I say cost, I'm not talking about monetary costs. I'm talking about time, right? For you to have to get wrap your mind around all this and operate it. 
that's equally important in any type of structure you're creating. And then the other mistake that I see people make is not understanding the tax side. So there are things that we can do when the way we're setting up our entities to ensure that we're always going to look better to lenders so we can fund more deals or if we want to sell the property. So I'll give you two, two concrete examples here. One individual comes to me, found me on the internet on YouTube, said, hey, Clint, I want to book a strategy session with you. We get it all set up. His problem was he had a multifamily trying to sell it. Two buyers keep fell out of financing. He had it in a limited liability company set up by a CPA. So the CPA got the structure right. He just didn't understand what tax election to make, which is the CPA. You'd think he'd know this. He chose to treat that LLC as a disregarded entity. Now, the benefit to the client is he didn't have to file a tax return with the disregarded LLC, but the CPA didn't know the right questions to ask, which would have been, hey, what do you plan to do with this property? Is this going to be a rehab stabilization and sell? Because if that's the case, this LLC needs to file a tax return and we're going to set it up as a partnership or maybe an S-corp. That would kind of be my secondary option. So that when we go to sell the property, the underwriters who are financing the deal for your buyers, they're going to get a tax return to verify the income and expenses and CapEx and all that with the property. Because absent that, it's going to be tough because they're always going to ask for tax returns. And he didn't understand that. And so as a result, they kept falling out under financing. And so there wasn't a clean cut solution for him. He had a third buyer in the same process. They kept asking for tax returns for the LLC. People say, just give me your 1040. It doesn't work that way because underwriters, they got these little checkbox they have to go through in order to underwrite a loan. Otherwise it isn't going to comport with the lender's requirements. And so they want to make sure that they're hitting all these boxes. And the same thing with the private investor that owns multi or owns residential real estate. I'll explain to them, hey, you can set it up where you own it personally or you own it through a disregarded LLC so you don't have to file a tax return, federal return. But what is that doing to you rather than what is it doing for you? And if you don't know what that is, then you're missing out on a big part of real estate investing. So what I'll tell my clientele, what I like the way I like to structure it, that Wyoming holding LLC, all of it treated as a partnership for federal tax purposes. And the reason why I do that is because it hits your income will hit your 1040 on a different line than if you own the real estate in your own name. And so where it hits your 1040 makes you actually look better to lenders so you can get more deals done because your debt to income ratio doesn't go out of whack. Because this is what can happen. If you own it in your own name, it screws up your debt to income ratio because they hold back income. You can make a hundred grand on your real estate and rental income. They'll say, no, we're only going to give you credit for 70,000 of that. You're like, what the hell? There's a hundred grand. You can see it. Yeah, but we're forced to hold back. Whereas if you structured it slightly different, same income, same taxes to you, but where it hits your tax return, they give you 100% of that. And then you take that and you look at the audit risk and now you just reduce your risk of audit as well. So if you're going to engage in cost segregation to massively depreciate your property, to throw off huge tax breaks to yourself, I prefer to do that through a partnership K-1 then on a 1040 Schedule E page one, so that I'm taken out of the audit risk pool. And so there's different layers. And I call that the business planning side of investing, where a lot of attorneys, if they're not investors, then they're not going to see that, that side of it because they haven't been down there and making the mistakes that I made these mistakes. And so it took me a few years to learn this stuff just from my own investing 
And thankfully, because we work with so many clients all across the country, I would find myself talking to experienced investors like yourself, and you're asking me for asset protection, and I'm asking you questions, yeah, to help you plan, but also to figure it out, hey, what is he doing that's helping him achieve his goals so much faster than I am? And you start putting all this stuff together, and it's really helped out our clients a lot in their investing. And I think like for our group, this is the simple passive cash flow is when your net worth grows, you eventually get out of these little rental properties, and not only for the legal headaches, as we talked before, like why do you, even maybe I should take myself out because I still sign on the debt personally, but for most of our clients, why do you even need to show income to qualify for a loan unless you're going to buy a primary residence? But then that's another problem I haven't figured out personally when you start to buy two, three, four, five million dollar properties, you can't get a loan for bigger than a million dollars. But if you're buying a regular house, like for most of you guys out there, but you're not going to be doing deals. You're not doing buying a duplex, triplex. You're just getting out of that world. And that's where you don't really need to think about these things as you start to gravitate more as a professional investor, as opposed to deal maker or the bigger pockets world, groupie guy, those kinds of types of folks. Let's say that I'm in four of your deals. That's four K-1s, then they come down to my tax return. So if I held it through one entity treated as a partnership, now I only have one K-1 that comes down to my tax return rather than four. So how does that benefit me? The benefit comes in the complexity of your return. And that should you go to qualify for a new personal residence and you want to use qualified mortgages, you're not working in the non-QM world, then when they look at your 1040, wherever you have to turn your 1040 over to, less is going to be better. The more you have, the more scrutiny it draws, and you take yourself out of potential situations that you could have ordinarily qualified for if you just didn't have your tax return structured in a certain manner. So when I look at planning, how your 1040 looks is just important to me as how your asset protection side is going to play out. I think all you guys just should go work with Anderson and then go to the tax page because I'm just, as the syndicator and sponsor, I'm just tired of working with some of your guys' CPAs that ask, like, they need to file this, or the mortgage brokers, they ask for all these little K-1s. And so it doesn't even matter. It's not like they have debt recourse to this loan. They're just a passive investor along with a hundred other investors. They give you guys, if the bureaucratic guy actually knew what a K-1 was part of a partnership, they wouldn't be asking these questions, but they're just following a checklist. And I don't know, that's my little rant against all these little doc or these requests that these mortgage brokers or underwriters ask for at the end of the day. Yeah, it's frustrating because it just can screw up your deal for sure. Oh, and it's time consuming for you to have to deal with all those little requests that come in. Before we move off of the legal side and talk a little bit about some of these questions, these typical questions that I get on the K-1 and taxes side, you mentioned like the kid going out and getting drunk and, you know, incurring liability for the family. We This specific question has come up many times in our family office group. The kids are becoming teenagers. Do you buy the car in their name? Do you put the, the loan in their name? What's the best practice for that? Especially when mom and dad are worth four or $5 million net worth and little juniors out there doing who knows what. That always comes down to what is the cost of insurance and how much you're willing to pay. Ideally, if the child 
when you say child, what, over 18 or uh, under 18, so 16 year, or even going up to the college, I guess I get, I don't know if it matters. It really doesn't matter so much. If they're going off to college, like the example I gave you, that vehicle is still in the parent's name. So that brought the liability back home, but they can also say that you're still supporting that child and therefore you're responsible for them. They could try to rope you in that way because you have the deepest pockets. So what I would recommend, if you have someone who's over the 18 or over, under 18, I don't think you can get out of it. But over 18, make sure they're the registered owner of the car. Okay, that legal owners aren't necessarily liable. It is the registered owner. And you know this because when you finance a car, the legal owner is always the bank. And you can't sue the bank because you go out and pull a DWI and you hit somebody else's car and destroy it. You sue the driver and the registered owner. So that's one way to, to minimize your risk exposure to the kids that are going off to college. Second thing is to show that they support themselves. You structure in such a way that maybe they're earning income or they have their own investment stream coming in. So you, you bring them into one of your LLCs and you give them five or 10% interest in that. And that gives them enough money to cover their expenses. And some people say, well, heck, if I give them a 10% interest and they're making 80 grand a year, how do I know they're not going to blow it on parties and girls and things like that? Because if they are, you're in control. You just turn it off is what you would do. And so that's what I tell people. You always want to make sure you're in control of, of what you're doing. Yeah. So have them put the loan in their name too, or that doesn't matter. The loan in their name, you could do that. The benefit of doing the loan in their name is that now they're going to build business credit. I'm not business credit. They're going to help build their credit. You may have to co-sign on the loan, but if they're on the loan as well, now they're starting to create that credit profile. So that's advantageous for sure to do that. What about insurance policy does, or does that does not matter, I guess. It doesn't matter so much, but what's going to happen, it's going to be more expensive for them. And if yeah. they're insured under your policy. I guess at what net worth would you say would it make sense to bring an irrevocable trust to take care of some of these issues and where they don't, nobody owns the car? It doesn't matter about the owner. It's a registered owner that comes down to it. So you could have the legal owner is the trust, but the registered owner is going to be your child. Or maybe you make the trust also the legal and the registered owner, but the child's driving it, then the liability flows back to that trust um, and whatever assets it would hold and the child gets sued. I could see you doing that. And if that's the only asset it holds is the car. The problem with that strategy is that someone's going to look at it and say, what is the purpose of the trust? And you're going to say to hold a car and for asset protection. And then you could run into problems where they don't respect the trust because it was set up strictly for asset protection purposes, they might look through it. You could try it. I'm not opposed to doing it because I think more roadblocks you put in place, the better off you are. You could just tie an attorney up. Oh, that car, oh, it's owned by an irrevocable trust. Oh, that's owned by a limited liability company over there. Oh, there's a corporation over there. No, we don't have the insurance. That's in the kid's name. And all of a sudden, they're just chasing down all these different paths. To me, that damn car is really the biggest point of contention. If you're thinking about how to not lose your money as far as... Here's what you do. You give your kid a bicycle, okay? And you solve the problem. Or number two, you make sure that all your assets are protected. So even if they do sue you, what are they going to get? Or get them Uber One and give them a whole bunch of Uber credits and stuff like yeah. that. So they never have to leave their house. Correct. Um, so let's switch over to some taxes stuff. And I had some questions here that I get asked a lot. And I always feel bad 
taking your guys' Tax Tuesday videos and regurgitating it back to them. Appreciate Clint answering these for me because they are the same old questions over and over again. The first one I normally get is this grouping election, right? Investor invests in a syndication deal where they're a passive investor and they get their gains and losses on this K-1 form. And especially if there's a cost segregation involved, there's a huge amount of losses created, often like at least half of what they invest. And then the investor goes back to their CPA who looks up from their glasses and says, you can't use those losses to offset the gains on other rental properties or other syndication deals. Maybe talk a little bit, what's the logical leap there and how should people handle that one? I'm not sure. As long as they're passive losses and you have passive income, those net out. And so that's the way that should be playing out. And there's always going to be nuances. If people are going back to their CPA with passive losses and they're trying to take those passive losses against ordinary income or non-passive income, then you're going to struggle unless you're a real estate professional. You're not going to be able to do that. So the losses that you pull out of a syndication, those can be grouped against similar types of income, but they can't be used to set up non-similar types uh, of income. Right. Similar types meaning passive income. Got to be passive. So from other rental properties or other syndicated deals? All passive. That's correct. Okay. So let's talk about, then that kind of leads into the next question. You can't use the passive losses to offset ordinary income, such as from your 1099s, your day job, unless maybe go into rep status, what that allows them to Yeah, so unless form. you become a real estate professional, which means that you're spending 50% of your time, so you don't hold a full-time job in a non-real estate related activity, and you spend 750 hours on real estate related activities. And so with reps, to meet that test, it doesn't have to be with your own rentals. You just have to be doing stuff in real estate. So you could be a broker, you could be a contractor, you could be someone that's involved in that, an appraiser, and you're gonna meet the first prong of the reps if that's what you do for your living. But then the second prong of that test is you have to materially participate in your rental real estate business activity. Or your Even portfolio it, there. Portfolio. The properties you own, correct. And so that's either, there, there's seven tests, but the two that we look at the most is gonna be the 500 hour test. You spend 500 hours on your real estate, plus you met the 750 and half of your time on other real estate activity, you're good. Or you have to spend a hundred hours and that hundred hours is more than anyone else that works on your properties. And so where I find that people struggle with the reps test is that they have out-of-state PMs, so they're not involved with their own real estate, and they try to use education, looking at balance sheets, and qualify. And there hasn't been a case yet that I'm aware of where that's ever happened. Now, that could uh, probably qualify for that first 750 hours that not involved in their portfolio, one might use that because that seven that 750 hours outside of their active portfolio is a little looser. In it's going to be tough because you got the 50% of the time. So if you're a physician, you ain't making it. You already, you miss out on that prong. So what I typically tell people is that if you want to make sure you're going to qualify, self-manage your real estate. Now, you don't have to self-manage all of it. Just self-manage enough where you get the hours 
and you're good to go. Or if you're not, if you don't have the time and you can't meet 750, 50% of your time, just do short-term rentals for a bit. Buy a property, turn it into a short-term rental, spend a hundred hours on that property. You don't have to worry about 750 hours, 50% of your time. You just do that. And your average rental period is seven days or less. Cost seg that thing, harvest a ton of tax deductions, turn it into a long-term rental next year. And you're gold. You can take that money now and you can offset those losses against all your income that are generated from that short-term rental activity. And so what I find is with many of our physician clients that are not yet just putting all, they're diversifying, they have their syndication interests, they have their equities, and they're doing some single families on the side. We're taking those and we're saying those need to be short-term rentals for the first year. Focus on that so we can harvest the losses. We had one guy who sold a, his interest in a, a clinic, hit a big windfall, and poured all that investment into a property in Texas and turned that into a short-term rental. His wife was the one that qualified. He still was busy. Wife qualified with 100 hours, and it freed up for him, I'm going to say it was $670,000 in deductions. So it can be huge if you look at it from that perspective. So if they turn on the short-term rentals, they do that for the first year. What about the next year? Are they a real estate professional next year when that thing goes to be a transition to a long-term rental? No, you're not. Because you couldn't meet the test to begin yeah, with. So and only that it's that, that one year, everything Yeah, you're getting out. all the cookies the first year. There's yeah. nothing left for the second year. So you don't care in the second year. You took it all now. Yeah. So this is that strategy where you're investing in a whole bunch of syndication deals. Maybe you invested half a million, you got 300,000 of passive, suspended passive losses on your 80, was 8285 form or something like that. But you have that ready to use. So you pulse it in next year, you, you do a short-term rental. Now it's your game to use those passive losses as you wish. But after that, you lose that kind of that star man ability that rep status for after that year. Or if you look, if you had excess passive losses, look for excess passive income opportunities you have where you have appreciated positions that are passive in nature, sell them, harvest the, lot, the gains this year to off, take your losses and offset it. Or buy another short-term rental next year, a couple years later. Rental, yeah. One of the things I, you and I were talking about, I had a client that approached me and said, I have this property. I've owned it since 2014. I told I couldn't do a cost seg on it. What should I do? And I, I don't qualify as a real estate professional. I need some tax deductions this year. I said, sell it. His complaint was, well, it's tripled in value. If I sold it, then I have to pay all this additional gain. I said, sell it on a 1031 exchange. Let's exchange up into even a larger property with that. Now, since you bought the property between two, September of 2017 and the year 2022, it qualifies for 100% bonus depreciation. So we exchange into a larger property for you. We then perform a cost seg on that larger property, generate a huge tax deduction this year that you can then use to offset that gain that you have. There's ways to use the code to, to fix your tax problems if you're willing to do it. In that case, he had to sell the property under a 1031 exchange, find the replacement property, which he was willing to do because he wanted to get the tax losses harvested. And this is the best year to do it because 100% 
goes away next year, goes to 80%. Yeah, still not as bad. The year after, I think 2024 will be 60%. But that's another strategy that I've been personally thinking about is buying a big house that I eventually like to live in. But to buy it and then cost take it out, stuff those passive losses in my pocket, then maybe live in it at some point. That's a strategy too. It's exactly Uh right. I'm running out of time in the year 2022 to do that. You are, but the thing is, if you buy it this year, you don't have to cost seg it this year to get the 100% bonus. You could cost seg it two years from now, as long as it was still an investment property, and it relates back to the year of acquisition. So if you bought it in 2022 and you held on to it, put it in the service, and then didn't perform a cost seg until 2024, your bonus depreciation would be 100% because it relates back to the year of acquisition, not when you do the cost seg. So that's why this year, as long as you buy something now for 2022 is out, 100%. Ah, that's a good one. That's a new one. I probably should know that. That's why our other CPAs on our cost big syndications, they say, yeah, you don't need to do it just yet. But that's a great point. And I really, I don't know if people missed it, but Clint's idea of you know, I'm not a huge fan of the 1031, but if you're going to do the 1031 to get a larger property to make the bigger bang for your buck on the cost say before the end of the year or acquire it before the end of the year, then the 1031 allows you to get something bigger to get a larger cost say and stick those la- losses in your pocket or at least kick the can down the road a little bit that way. So the other questions that kind of come to mind as far as passive investor taxes like I, I think the big thing that a lot of CPA firms are scrambling, or at least on our side, we're seeing K-1s get taking so long. And most times in private equity world, it, to have them get it completed in January, February is just ridiculous in the private equity world. We tell them to do it in October when it's normally due. But still, investors or their CPAs are asking for these K-1s and what if a K-1 is missed, right? Can they just refile it next year or what's the... They can amend the return. Just make sure you approximately if there's positive income there, what that's going to be and just report the income. So you didn't under-report your total over income. But here's the thing with, like you said, the CPAs, we have a, a large tax group inside of Anderson. And the problem you're running into, this is industry-wide. You can't find enough people to work. And so it's just really slowing down the process for everyone and getting their returns completed because there just aren't enough preparers right now in the workforce that are willing to do the job. And so you see it across the board. doesn't matter your guys, it's taken them a long time to get their K-1s out. Unfortunately, it's because they don't have the manpower. And everyone we talked to, because we we've been trying to grow and expand our tax department beyond the 140 people that we have to buy up other companies and thinking, all right, we're going to get more people, economies of scale. And they're behind. They're struggling to get through their work because of that. And here's my personal tax question. So I got 80, 100 K-1s every year, then I make it into a little spreadsheet so I can spot check you guys at the end to make sure approximately how much passive losses I should have. Yeah. But like the K1s, they're never right. Like the names are always spelt wrong or the damn boxes on the bottom, they're checked. They're all messed up anyway. Is that even, does IRS even look at that stuff or does even I mean, anybody that's care? That's not going to get you audited. 
They're yeah. just looking to see if you've got the income reported on your return. They're matching up not with the name, but with the EIN. That's really what it's pulling down to. So it matches back to the parent return. The partner. If they were to audit, they would partner. They would audit on the partnership level and just make sure all the numbers add up to what Correct. the partner divvied up in the beginning. And here's why you're not getting audited. You have 80 K-1s in your return. You're an auditor. You look at that. You're like, the hell? <laughs> I'm going after this 1040 guy. That's the biggest joke about it that they keep talking about with what they just passed with that Inflation Reduction Act scam. They say, well, they're hiring all these auditors. Who do you think they're going to target? They're not going after the people that have the K-1s and the more sophisticated returns. They're going to target the middle income taxpayer that doesn't have the investments that just files a 1040 because that's the easiest person. Plus, you don't have the knowledge. We've got some ex-IRS attorneys that work for us that used to work in the audit department. And they said, it's crazy. You gave me a, a room of a thousand auditors. There's only 10 in that room that handle corporations and partnerships and, and those types of returns, 1040s that have K-1s on them. He said, the rest of them can't touch them. So yeah. he said, that's the best way to hold assets. So what should I tell? A lot of our investors are new. They might have three or four K-1s and then they're asking, they're saying, oh, we spent spelt their name wrong on this K-1 or this checkbox needs to be checked. It's just not a big deal. I think like, I, you can send them a corrected K-1, but as long as they're going to be reporting their income, then it's not in and of itself going to trigger an audit on them. Yeah, I get it. People always, everyone's concerned about being audited, but that's not the thing that's going to contribute you know, trigger the audit. What's going to trigger the audit is that you, the 1065 reports that you earned $250,000 and you report that you only made $250. That could be a problem. If yeah. they catch it and you're part of the 0.04% or whatever that number is that actually gets audited 0.1%. But I think if I've followed your guys' Tax Tuesdays enough, your guys' big strategy is you guys put as many things on like the schedule C, right? As opposed to what normally people will put things in the 1040 or the schedule E. And that's a lot more audited. Is that kind of schedule one of the... C is more audited. So you have page one of schedule E that gets audited. We prefer to put things on page two, which is going to be via K1. So all those K1s that you get that have to do with real estate, those show up on page two of your schedule E. Not on page one is reserved for real estate that you own in your own name or through a disregarded entity. That's the audit. Because again, 990 auditors handle those types of returns. When you put that income over onto page two via the K1, now you got 10. So another reason why not to own little rental properties. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> well, to close this out, plan. I know you're always looking at these inflation reduction acts and the BBB stuff. Do you any like, Looking into the crystal ball, anything coming up for investors to be on the lookout for, for like new tax breaks, like maybe a new opportunity zone-ish type of thing or something exciting you coming up or, or should we, we really be worried about the 80,000 IRS agents who they're teaching with the fake guns? I wouldn't be worried about after. the 80,000 IRS no. agents because they're not going to find them. We can't find tax preparers. Who are they going to find to do this? And you can't find employees right now. They're not going to find employees. Just finding people that show basic level skills that they actually want to work. Good luck. But beyond that, I think that the biggest thing on my horizon for, is for people who own entities is going to be the Corporate Transparency Act, where they're going to issue the finals regs and they're going to have the auditing procedure that's going to be released in, they said, December is when they have to release that. 
And so I think that's the one thing that I'm curious to find out what's going to be required and what the reporting requirements are for anybody who has a business that have set up a revoke business trust or LLC or corporation, how that information is going to get disclosed to the federal government. Does that one have to do with, I remember a couple of years ago, I told everybody that we're putting their syndications and LLCs. They all got pissed off at me because I said, we need your social security number, man. Like, And then they got all upset with me. And I was just like, I'm just the messenger. I know. Is that what the Corporate Transparency Act, is that part of it or? Yeah, you're going to have to, you have to report on all the members of the limited liability companies, the managers, the officers, all that corporation, same thing. That's going to have to get submitted to to the federal government. And I forget if on a syndication, if there's a, if there's a de minimis rule where you don't have to provide that information, but it's going to be an annual reporting requirement. Government wants to know what you're doing because they think that you're committing tax fraud or your money laundering is really what they're concerned about. Yeah. I know people don't like to give that stuff up, especially when they're purposely using entity to invest through, like how you mentioned earlier, but from a standpoint of IRS doesn't have enough agents and to collect revenue from people who are doing bad things, like on purpose. I think that might be a good idea for them so they can go catch those guys because that's what people were doing, right? They were, they're creating all these LLCs and creating all these deductions or hiding all the gains. And it's impossible to track unless you can tie it to one EIN or one social security number. And we're not doing fraud here. They should go catch those guys. Tell me a law that stopped some type of crime from occurring, right? Yeah. It's not going to happen. You want to commit fraud, you're going to do it. So side note here, years ago- This makes it harder for all of us. It does. The IRS came in, they audited our company because they wanted transparency because we set up entities in Wyoming or at that time we did a lot in Nevada. And they said, we want a list of all your clients, which they can force you to provide. They do it all the time to companies. And we said, why do you need this list? You said, we want to know who's behind all these companies. He said, you already know that. They said, no, we don't. We said, every time we set up a company, we obtain an EIN and we provide you the member, the owner of that company and their social security number. Who's behind every single company that's set up? That's how we acquire the EIN. We don't acquire them under our own names. And this is what they told us. You may do that, but we have no way in our system of matching that information up. I said, are you kidding me? That's a basic computer system. You can't run that. I said, no, our system can't handle that. And so that's why we need to ask you for the information. Yeah. <laughs> so it just shows you how antiquated they are and the way they approach things. And so even if they collect this information, it's not going to do them any good. It's basically, we didn't keep our records straight or right. we don't, it's too much money to revamp our computers. Let's just bother everybody again. That's exactly right. (laughs) Thanks for coming on, Clint. Again, folks, we'll put this in the the tax section at the webpage, simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. And we've had Toby on there. We've had Clint on there on past webinars. So those are all up in there too. But remember, a lot of this stuff is personal. This is just a podcast made for entertainment. But hopefully we've created some questions in your guys' head to ask more probing questions and Again, join the investment club, simplepassacashflow.com slash club. We'll get on the phone there or get on a Zoom call and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Len.